Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, we'll be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, and that includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem-solving, decision-making, team development, and much more. The sessions are virtual, running one hour each month, and we'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoint, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. You can either have your entire organization take our program, or if you have just a few folks, join one of our open enrollment cohorts that start every other month. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. Well, back in the year 2000, my wife and I relocated to the Washington, D.C. area from her last duty station in Memphis, Tennessee, Millington, Tennessee. I had been out of the Navy for about a year, and I was busy kind of working my career with the ultimate dream to do what I'm doing today, but I had to start someplace. And so I began looking for jobs. I used my trade association I was a part of, which was then ASTD. It is now ATD. And I found a posting for a trade association that wanted a director of training. So I went ahead and faxed my resume. That's how long ago this was. Had a round of interviews on the phone and accepted the job and it was offered to me right there on the phone. And so we relocated there. Now, this trade association represented government contractors. And so the association would serve to not only educate them, but also be able to lobby for that industry. My job was to provide training programs. And so I began working on that. We had an association president, and then we had a board that was called the executive committee. And these were presidents of some large corporations that were members. And of course, twice a year, we'd have to report out things that we were working on. Well, there was one individual who was on the committee that was very quiet, and I didn't know really much about him until I started asking. Well, turns out his name was Mike Shelton, and he was a retired admiral in the Navy, which immediately I thought, wow, how about that? And so I didn't really talk much to him, but I always kind of had an idea that, you know, he brought this background and experience with him. Well, I stayed at the association for a couple more years, and then, you know, of course, my career sort of changed, and I'm doing what I'm doing today. Well, I guess it was about maybe six, seven months ago, I was looking through LinkedIn, and I see Mike Shelton, who was on LinkedIn, had just written a book. So I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So I looked at it, and uh, I reached out, and I said, hey, Mike, would you be interested in being on the podcast to talk about the book? Well, he reached back out and said he would be, and so he sent me a copy of the book. Now, this is where the story gets very interesting. Well, interesting for me anyway. The title of the book is West Point Admiral, and if you know anything about the military, you probably say, wait a minute, West Point is an Army Academy. It's not a Navy Academy. Where in the world do admirals come from? Well, ironically, I didn't know this either, and so I thought, well, I'm going to have Mike on the show and have him tell a story and talk about, you know, his you know, transition to corporate America and some of the lessons that HR professionals can learn from. Well, he sent me the book. And the first thing I noticed is it was a big book. And like most everything I do, I tend to wait to the last minute. So about a day before the podcast, I thought, well, I better crack this book and kind of skim it for the high points, right? Well, I'll tell you what, my skimming lasted about two seconds as I began digging into the book and I found myself unable to put this down. I was able to get about halfway through it before Mike and I had our interview. And so I admitted that to him, and you'll hear that in just a minute, but I was absolutely fascinated. 
fascinated by his career, but even more so as he wrote about his experiences, the way that he dealt with conflict, dealing with people. And I thought there's a lot of depth in this. And so when we got ready for the podcast, I really just had my talk. So that's what we're about to do now. I'm not going to talk any more about what we talked about, except to let you know that at the end of this, there is actually going to be an opportunity for you to purchase this book. You can go to Amazon. You can also go to Barnes & Noble. But if you go to Mike's website, which is westpointadmiral.com, and make sure you use the code WPFLAG, that is W-P-F-L-A-G, you will actually get the book at a 20% discount. So I would encourage you to go to that website, westpointadmiral.com, and make sure that you order this book. So that's about all I'm going to talk about. Mike's the one that tells the stories. So I'm going to be quiet. And while I'm being quiet, you know what you need to do. Let's make sure that personal item's tucked up underneath the seat in front of you. Please make sure that your seatbelt is buckled low and across your hips. We're about to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Mike Shelton, welcome to the show. Well, I'm happy to be here, Mac. I'm glad you're here today, too. So, Mike, you are the author of this book I'm holding in my hand right now. It is called West Point Admiral. Now, for the average listener, they're like, oh, West Point Admiral, I bet that's a good story. But the title of the book alone is a shocker because admirals don't come from West Point. That's where the Army officers come from. And so I'm intrigued with that, and I'm going to let you tell us about that. But when people think of the Navy, at least people that I know that are not real familiar, when they hear Navy, they have three pictures in their head. The first is of Navy SEALs, who tend to get all of the hype and the movies and the TV shows, and they write the books, and now they're consultants and things like that. And then, of course, we've had a resurgence now with uh, Top Gun Maverick. So I saw a little meme of a recruiter talking to a young kid, and the kid's like, so you're saying I can fly the F-18? And the recruiter's like, oh, absolutely, <laughs> right? But there is, then there's a third, which is, you know, you picture the sailor with the bell bottoms on and, you know, swabbing the deck with a mop. That's kind of people's picture. But your background in the Navy now was with the Seabees, the construction battalions. And I'm sure there are several people who say, wow, I didn't even know the Navy did that. I'm going to let you fill in that piece of information. So ton of information and full disclosure i mentioned this earlier and i'm going to mention to the audience now as of today which is august the 9th um i have actually read half of your book and you're thinking wow way to half asset mac i read that half a book in like an hour and a half it, this is a page turner so if you're looking for a great book and there's even some pictures in here and i want to talk about those pictures this is a phenomenal book especially if you are a historian because you've given us a very detailed account of your time in Vietnam, and I haven't even got to post-war. We're still at the Tet Offensive right now. <laughs> and so I, you can go ahead. I, I mean, I know how it turns out, right? Right. <laughs> but your story in particular, I don't know. So I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to let you do a lot of talking. So we're going to go through your background. I want you to talk to us. You know, how did you become an admiral after going to West Point? But then as we get down toward your corporate career, which you did after your military time, 
you've got some insights on some of the common challenges that our audience faces, challenges around performance management, around leadership development, and I'd like to get your perspectives on those. So I'm gonna quit talking. Mike, I want you to kind of take us through maybe a bird's eye view of your journey, because if we let you talk about every detail, we'd be here till Christmas, which I wouldn't mind that, by the way, but I'm sure you got more important things to do. So let's start with how you ended up at West Point and yet found yourself at the end of your career as a Navy Admiral. Tell us how that happened and then just take us through your journey. Okay, I'll be happy to do that, Mac. Well, I, I've said to a number of friends over time, uh, my life was has been ruled by bureaucrats. Uh, the short answer uh, of how I got to West Point was my father was a career Navy enlisted man. He retired as a master chief. Uh, he saw a lot of action in World War II. He was at Pearl Harbor. He was at Midway. Uh, his, his ship accompanied the Doolittle Raiders on the uh, attacks on Japan. He was in the middle of a lot of stuff. Um, and he did over 30 years. And I, I guess when I was in grade school, he just told me one day that I was going to the Naval Academy. That's what he wanted me to do. And as we all know, back in the 50s, you didn't tell your dad, well, I have my own agenda. Now you did what your dad said. <laughs> and uh, so I kind of said, okay, marched along to that drum beat, uh, got into high school. I went to take a physical uh, and the doctors was in a Navy hospital. The doctor said to me, I'm sorry, son, you don't have 2020 vision. You can't go to the Naval Academy. The end. <laughs> well, wow. that, that was a, kind of a shock. I went home and told my dad, and he said, well, look at those other academies and see if you can get into any of them. Bottom line is the only one I could pass the eye test for was West Point. So I applied. I was really lucky, and I ended up getting an appointment to go to West Point. Went to West Point, uh, went in in 1963. Kennedy was the president, had no intention of going in the Navy. Uh, I was gonna go in the Army then. So I went through the four years there. Um, as it came time, uh, as we went through it, more bureaucrats arrived, only these were Army bureaucrats. And their thing was that there were, if you were a graduate of West Point, you had to go into one of the five combat branches, infantry, artillery, signal, armor, or engineers. And there were upper and lower quotas for each one of those. And you could choose which branch based upon your class standing. And the most popular um, branch at that time was the Corps of Engineers, which is what I wanted to be in. And uh, guess what? I was just below the cutoff for that. I could be in anything else, but I couldn't be in the Corps of Engineers. So I guess I was trying to figure out what was going on. The same time the Vietnam War had started really heating up. Uh, uh, I was home, I guess it was for Christmas, my junior year. Uh, my dad asked me uh, you know, what was going on. I told him all this stuff and he said, have you ever heard of the Seabees? I said, not really, I know there's a movie John Wayne, and it's called the Fighting Seabees. I've seen it. Uh, Seabees are the engineers who go with the Marines. Uh, 
And he says, well, the Navy has a civil engineer corps. They do CBs. They do also all the engineering for the Navy shore establishment. And there's a rule right now that says, bureaucrats again, that any graduate of any academy can go into the service that his father spent a career in. Wow. Just have to apply. So I checked that out and it was true. I wrote a letter to the Civil Engineer Corps of the Navy, said I wanted to be a CB. I got a letter back uh, halfway through my senior year saying, we'd love to have you. Uh, you're, you, you would go into the Civil Engineer Corps. You would join a CB battalion in Vietnam uh, within three months or four months of graduation and you know, complete that tour and we'll send you to graduate school for two years anywhere you want to go. So I went back to the Army and said, you know, I'd really like to be in the Corps of Engineers. And they said, infantry, artillery, signal, or armor. And I said, goodbye. It was about that emotional. <laughs> so that's how I got into the Navy. Uh, had a great career. I did six tours off with the CBs, commanded at almost every level there was from uh, uh, as, a, as an ensign. I the security platoon of a battalion to being a company commander, battalion commander, regimental commander, brigade commander, did all those things. So anyway, that, that was what I did that way. Um, after I, and I had a lot of staff jobs, probably the most pertinent to discussion of HR and that kind of thing is, I was fortunate enough to run the enlisted assignment branch for the CBs uh, in, in, as a lieutenant commander. There was about 15,000 CBs, and I ran an office that had made all their assignments. Uh, I also sat on selection boards that picked chief petty officers. Uh, it's a fascinating thing. We did all the promotion policies and all the, uh, the career policies and that kind of thing. Uh, sometime later, I guess no good deed goes unpunished, I was chosen to run the off the Civil Engineer Corps Officer Assignment Branch, which did the same thing. We put promotion plans together. We put selection boards together. We did all of the uh, assignments. This was a little bit different because uh, while we handled everybody that was, say, perhaps a commander or 05 or equivalent of lieutenant colonel in the Army, we did all this kind of in our own office. The senior people... Uh, the commanders, the captains, and the flag officers were all uh, slates were put together by me, and then I would talk to the to the flag officers of the Civil Engineer Corps, and they would decide whether I was right or wrong or where they wanted people anyway. So very fascinating. This was also at a time when women were being integrated in large numbers into the military, so you know women's policies, those kind of things. Also, uh, the diversity quotas and all those things were happening. So we planned uh, postgraduate, all, all that kind of, everything you can think about that had to do with people, uh, including discipline and other things, I was involved in. So for, the, for this audience, I spent a lot of time working in, in the HR area and involved in selection uh, for jobs, uh, particularly command jobs and executive jobs. And unfortunately, uh, removing people, sending them court marshals and things for things that they had not, you know, didn't do right or were illegal or whatever. So I got through all of that, 
again, back to the CBs, uh, was involved in a lot of interesting things that I talk about in the book. Uh, fortunately, uh, I got selected for flag, you know, and, and, and uh, I, I would, as a little vignette on that, I used to tell people when I would go out and talk to the officers when I was the assignment man, I'd say, you know, I'd ask them if they understood what, what the most important things in being selected were for, for, to be an admiral. And of course, I got all kinds of an answers. And then I would say to them, the two most important things are your parents and your birthday. <laughs> and they'd all gasp. And I said, the reason this is important is your, your parents determine what your birthday is and your birthday determines what competitive group you are in in the Navy. If you're lucky, you're going to be in a weak group where you stand out easily and it's not a big deal, or you're unlucky and you're in a very tough group with a lot of really good people. The last thing that you don't have any control over is who sits on the selection board. You know, you may have a great career, do all these great things, and the people, somebody on your selection board is somebody that you've run into and had a run a foul with, and they don't like you. There's not much you can do about that. So wow. the point is, there are lots of variables and assignments, and I think every one of the HR professionals understand there's a lot more into it. It's not a transparent procedure, and now there's more government rules and things on that. So anyway, did all that, had a great career, retired from the Navy. I was hired by a, uh, a family-owned uh, corporation uh, to run their facilities management branch. I did that. We did contracting with federal uh, agencies. Uh, one of the big ones we were running was the, the naval base at Guantanamo, Cuba, where we ended up building the, uh, the prison camp for the, for the terrorists and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I worked for them about six years, and then I was hired away by a large uh, publicly traded company, did about six to eight billion dollars worth of work. They had me run, again, the government branch of that company that did facility services. So I had sought from both sides. I worked for them for a number of years, and I finally decided to call it quits when I was uh, uh, 70. And then I, this was my, my goal was to write this book uh, so I could explain to my, my uh, kids and grandkids kind of what, what their mother and I did. And I would say, as an aside to this, my wife was, uh, I met her in the Navy. She was a, a Navy nurse at the Navy hospital in Rota, Spain. So I had a special insight. She stayed in for 20 years. So I had a special insight into women in the Navy's problems, being a woman in the workforce, yada, yada, yada. So that gave me a lot more insight. So this book, uh, I wanted it to be a kind of a explanation of both my, my career and my wife's career and all the things we ran into. So that's kind of in a nutshell, uh, what the book's about, what, how I got to where I was and, uh, I guess I'd turn it back over to you, Mac. Yeah, that well, that was like a satellite view. Like, right. that, that would have taken like a page and a half of this massive book. I mean, this is the kind of book, if you have a grandkid and they can't reach the table, you have them sit on this <laughs> and that'll prop. This is a good book. I mean, it's solid. 
So, Mike, I want to go back through some of the details. Before we started, you had mentioned, because I'd asked you, you know, what inspired this, and you were telling me about the pictures. Tell us about the pictures you and your wife discovered. Well, when my parents passed, uh, and, and her parents also, but but somehow we ended up, and, and as, as it turns out, uh, my mother ended up being kind of, she was the oldest, and her uh and her sister, her, the, her, the, the two younger ones, her brother and sister, one died early and the other one uh, was very ill. So somehow she ended up with all of their pictures. And my dad was, uh, sister was quite a bit older than him and he had no other brothers or sisters. So all of their parents' stuff all came to him. So we had all these documents and books, I mean, pictures and everything. And we started looking and we didn't know who these people are. And we read the letters and we didn't understand them. So part of the, the story was we wanted to write something. So when our kids said, well, why was it we went from, from, from Virginia Beach to Yokosuka, Japan? What was that all about? How come we went there? Why did we do this? And why did we do that? And blah, 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 blah. So that's what, that was part of the purpose. Uh, the other thing I, I was interested in, and I, I talk about in there, my dad never talked much about World War II. He was in some really horrific battles. Uh, his One of his high school best friends, we're talking in a little teeny town in central Illinois with 25, you know, 20, 25 people in the graduating class. A guy from that class was on his ship and he was ran by him about 30 seconds before he was killed by a Japanese kamikaze. Uh, you know, he never talked about that until I came back from Vietnam. And he said, now maybe you'll understand. So I wanted to explain war, what my grand, my dad had seen, what I saw. So again, try to pass that along. So that's long-winded, but that's kind of why I did what I did. No, I love that. There's two groupings of black and white photos in this book. And the first one is a picture of I'm apparently your dad in 1939. Right. And uh, you know, the Navy is like one of the only services that their uniform is like never changed. I mean, this looks kind of like what I went through in boot camp back in 83. But you tell a story about your dad at Pearl Harbor and it's amazing. So you said your dad never talked much about it. Well, you went through Vietnam. Did you talk about things when you would come home on leave or in between commands? Not really. And, you know, and plus it was a lot different, you know, uh, People in the country were pretty supportive of World War II. And as we all know, they weren't supportive of Vietnam. And uh, I'll give you a little vignette. Uh, I went from Vietnam, where I was in the Tet Offensive and a lot of bad stuff. I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois, and I happened to be there when the Kent State shootings happened, where the National Guard opened fire on students in Kent State and killed some of them. So Illinois had a... Um, stand down, if you will, so we could talk about the war. And I, my, my class, I was in the engineering department, which are pretty serious. They don't get into that very often, but this was mandatory. And I was in a room with about 250 students and people started talking about Vietnam and how awful it was and what was going on. And, and I sat and listened to this and nothing they said was right. Mm. And finally I raised my hand and the professor called me and he said, well, what, what is it, Mike? What do you want to say? And I said, I just like to ask how many people in this room have been to Vietnam? Well, there was only one hand that went up and it was mine. 
Mm. None of nobody in there had ever been, and all they ever knew about it was what they saw Walter Cronkite say on TV. So anyway, uh -huh. that that's the reason I never talked about it. Nobody understood it. Nobody wanted to know about it, and it it took a lot a lot of years. And now you know, kind of, it's there's been a resurgence, and I think I read somewhere that now <clears throat> Vietnam veterans have a lot of respect when they do uh, public opinion polls, but. For many years, they did. So that's kind of the answer to that. Yeah, it, it kind of took a while. I still, and you've referenced it in the book, the dogs and sailors keep off the grass sign, which is sort of legendary for sailors. I'd never saw anything like that in San Diego. But yeah, it wasn't until I think, well, Desert Storm shifted it a little bit. Yes. And people were like, that's when I think the Vietnam veterans first started getting recognized. They had a big parade in L.A., I was stationed in Long Beach at the time, and when the Vietnam veterans came through, man, people stood up and cheered. It's as if they finally wanted to recognize it. And then, of course, after 9-11, you know, it was never, I never heard, thank you for your service, because I got out in 99. But, yeah, it's all over the place today. So a different vibe, yes. I suppose, you know, give it a few more years and another unpopular conflict, and we might see it shift. But that, but it's, it's changed a little bit. So, Mike, you... Just for the benefit of the audiences, talk about when you're on a when you're with a battalion. You know what does that look like? Because you all are basically a lot of folks that do construction. A little bit different than we think of the Navy's fleet sailors or even shore-based sailors. So, let's say you're a part of a a, a CB battalion that's going on deployment. Uh, what what does that typically involve in a peacetime setting? Well, you're 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 going to go somewhere uh, generally where there, there's Certainly, most times it's a Navy presence, but since the joint world has really come up, uh, the, the, the CBs are very much sought after by all the other services to do things for them. Uh, and there's a host of reasons for that that are kind of beyond the scope of this. But uh, the, the battalion is organized very much like an, an Army or a Marine battalions, or they have a, a headquarters company which has all the administrative stuff. And then there are, you know, four companies. Uh, one is an equipment company. Uh, one is a utilities company. And there's a couple of uh, what you would call vertical construction companies that have uh, builders and steel workers. And then when you get to the deployment site, sometimes there are there's a made one major site. Other times there's a there are a whole host of detachment sites. Uh, and they there's been projects assigned, designed, and and hopefully materials sent there. Uh, and then uh, it's the, the, the leadership of the battalion, you know, kind of task orients uh, detachments and, and, and groups to build pro uh, projects. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the leadership of the service, be it Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, whoever, they set the priority of what's most important and what's got to be done first. And clearly, if it's a combat environment like Desert Shield you talked about and Desert Storm, the CBs were there early. Uh, they built a lot of the facilities that, that facilitated the, the, the combat troops to go forward. Uh, you know, they became the new best friends for the Army and the Marines and the Air Force because they could do stuff uh, that the contractors couldn't do. So um, that's, that's kind of how, it, how it's, it's, it's task-oriented. And the, the manpower and woman power now in the battalion, uh, the, the skill sets that are put together are the result of lots of determinations 
of, of what are the proper skills and, and levels of skills that are required to do the, the broadest amount of work uh, to support the armed forces. Well, my experience with the Seabees, uh, my first duty station was at Navcomstay Heraldy Holt in Western Australia, and we had a pretty robust public works department. That was my first exposure to Seabees. I don't know if it was like this, you know, what you remember, but boy, I remember Seabees could party. Good Lord, could they party. And they were some fun people to hang around with. And then when I was stationed on Guam, we had, I don't remember if it was NMCB three or five, but I remember we were really good at swapping things. Right. Uh, we needed certain things or they needed something for their dental department. They'd hit us up and we'd, you know, it was, it was the way you make things work outside of the channels. And it was always a very positive relationship. In fact, tell us a little bit about when you, because in Vietnam, according to your book, you were considered not really, I guess, I wouldn't say non-combatant, but you were defensive only, right? You would not be out leading patrols, but you could defend yourself. Correct. And you didn't have some of the weapons you needed. So there's a, a part in there, and I want you to give us a little overview because people need to read this book for sure. But okay. you were looking for a little better weapon to protect yourself with. And so you resorted to what I found CBs to be very resourceful at, and that is finding things. How did you manage to arm yourself better? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the, your point is right on. Uh, I used to used to laugh and say, you know, the, the United States military and the Defense Department has some really brilliant people in it and they plan really well. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, in the great planning scheme, uh, they don't end up with the right. The, if you look at it across the board, everybody all the things that are needed by everybody exist. It's just a misdistribution of them. And the story that you're talking about is one of the things that was very dangerous there, and it's still dangerous in all, all combat zones, are as travel on roads. And the Army and the Marine Corps armed their trucks, their big five-ton trucks. They would, they would put a 50 caliber machine gun, which is a bad piece of business if you're on the receiving end they would put them on on designated trucks and have them in the convoy so if they got ambushed they could fire into the the, the, the enemy and get out of there and yeah. well those were deemed by the powers that be to be offensive weapons and since we were a defensive only unit um we weren't allowed to have them so the chief petty officers in the, in the battalion said, well, this is wrong. And we actually had a Marine first sergeant who was our military advisor. And they all got together and they said, you know what? The Marines down the road down here, you know, they have 50 caliber machine guns, but they don't have a lot of plywood. Uh, they don't have a lot of concrete. They don't have all the things. And they actually live in some pretty miserable things. So the chiefs went down and they talked to the Marines and they did a trade, plywood, concrete, even some, we'd send some CBs over to wire things up for them, that kind of stuff. And in return, they gave us machine, uh, 50 caliber machine guns and ammunition, which we put on our trucks uh, that we weren't supposed to have. And they just wrote it off in their system as combat losses. I mean, who's gonna question that? Nobody. Right. So. Uh, and this this happened a lot between the, the different services. It always seemed like the Air Force had something that 
somebody else wanted and the army had things that other people wanted back and forth. But uh, by and large, to your point, the CBs were very good at trading because they had a skill set that everybody wanted and you could trade, you know, a, a CB's time and, and, and tools go over and they could do something to get people out of the mud or build defensive positions or whatever, which were very much appreciated and very light, uh, very, very popular. And in return, they would give us whatever we were trying to get. Yeah. Well, I think that's how things get done. You know, people, it's probably not a lot of our audience today, but when MASH was on, there was always radar, you know, right. he was the guy that could get things. And even in Shawshank Redemption, there's Red, who's the guy who can get things. For those that don't know, um, you mentioned the word chief and, and everything I remember, I did not make chief is super competitive and I got out by then, but chiefs were the kind of people that would do things and you never asked how they did it. You just appreciated it. Did you ever experience that? Uh, that I, I, I'd have to say that if you talk to most people and you were in the, in the Navy, certainly at, at the times that I'm going on, but I think it's still true. You know, the, 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 the buzzword in the Navy is ask the chief, you know, and, uh, and, you know, my dad was a master chief. He was in the Navy for over 30 years. And of course I had a little tutoring from him before I went in the service and I watched how he operated and all that stuff. And the, the thing I always remember him telling me early on was, okay, uh, you tell, you ask a chief or you tell a chief what you need, but you never tell them how to do it. You know, they're going to say, particularly if you're a junior officer, well, chief, this is when we've been tasked to do this and I need this by a certain time. And invariably they'd say, yes, sir, we'll take care of it. Now to say that they, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's with all the regulations and everything would be naive. They didn't. Uh, the same thing was, you know, again, in the HR world, uh, the same thing was true with troublemakers. You know, mm. if somebody was causing trouble and making the, the chief's unit look bad or whatever, uh, they took care of it. Now, today, everybody would gasp and say, oh, my God, physical violence and all but that's the way it was, okay? It just was. And they had ways of making people perform. And again, as my dad would say, you don't want to know. Uh, I'll tell you one little anecdote that, that, that goes to selection boards and all that. The first selection board I ever sat on was uh, for chief petty officer. And this is, uh, the board was made up of, of uh, Lieutenant commanders, that's like a same as a major and the other services and a master chief had each one had a certain number of ratings to the, all the, the, the personal or the the, uh, the skill sets uh, that they looked at and recommend promotion for the for the uh, with the best qualified against a bunch of quotas. Uh, but one of the one of the rules was that if the individual that was being recommended had, had a court martial or some disciplinary problem, you had to explain what that was and why you wanted them to spite this. So to to uh, just briefly say there was a guy uh, who we we picked or that the, the, their their group selected as the number one guy, the best guy to, for this to be made chief. 
but he had had a, had a court martial. And so they got up to talk about it and uh, why they did it. It turned out that the, this guy had been, uh, been a, uh, a company commander in boot camp or recruit training. Uh, and he had been court-martialed for striking a recruit. And uh, the guy read from his record the same time he was rated or that he had been uh, court-martialed, he had been rated the number one boot camp company commander from about 40 people. And in his evaluation, uh, the, uh, com the commanding officer of, of the thing, who was a Navy captain or the same as a colonel, had written that no man alive would have could have stood the provocation that he did. Uh, this individual had spit in his face in a formation. Uh, so anyway, that's what happened. So everybody kind of shook their head and said, well, it sounds like whatever. And one of the members of the board objected and said, well, you know, this is, this is, you know, we can't have violence in the military and blah, 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 blah. And so at the end of the day, very upset. One of the other members of the board who was a W4, a, a very senior warrant officer, had not said anything during the entire board, raised his hand and said, well, this is what I'm going to say about that. I was on the deck force. Uh, for, I've been on the deck force for over 30 years in the Navy on every kind of ship there is. And what I learned is sometimes you have to get people's attention to get them to do what they're supposed to do. And if they didn't listen to me and I told them a couple of times and they didn't listen to me, I whacked them upside the head. <laughs> and if they didn't listen to me again, I whacked them upside the head. And you know what? They did it. So sometimes you just have to do that. Well, you can imagine the result in the, in the boardroom, but the vote in the room in the room was 39, four and one against. So I hope that answers what, you, what you're asking about. Yes. Chiefs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. And it, that is sort of, you know, I think we, we, I remember it, you know, they're kind of the backbone of the Navy, I guess. It's really funny too. I know when Barb became an officer, my wife, you know, she was at her second duty station. She was in Gitmo, and so she had a chief that worked for her. She was an ensign, and, uh, you know, so he writes in his eval, which he was his division officer. She had to sign it. You know, he says, I mentored the new junior officer. <laughs> so, of course, Barb. You probably remember. She says, exactly what mentoring did you give me? I was enlisted longer than you've been in the Navy. Uh, exactly what mentoring did you provide me? Well, that shut him up right away. <laughs> And so I think that it goes to say, too, just like, and I want to ask you about this next, there's some really, really great leaders. And then there's some really, I mean, there's, there's some mediocre, but I think it's, there's a wide range. It's like awful or amazing. Right. And I think she happened to have awful. And, but, you know, the amazing chiefs that I have worked for, and there's been a few, like, wow, same thing. Don't ask. It just gets shit done. And it's pretty impressive. So let's, let's go back to that, Mike, because I want to really drill down. I had a couple of topics, but I thought, now I might just have you back on the show again because I don't want to <laughs> keep you too long here. But I do want to kind of talk now about leadership. So you did your, how many total years were you active duty? 34. 34. So you 34 and then you spent another, it was about 15 years in corporate afterwards? Yes. Okay, so you've seen both, and I met you for the first time at a trade association I worked. It was my second job out of the Navy, 2000 to 2003, I think, is when I left. 
but you were a member of our executive committee there. And so I didn't, I didn't know, I knew you were a retired admiral. I knew nothing about your background, but I knew you as a strategic leader on this board that governed this trade association with a lot of big companies, some great people I met there. So you've seen both sides of this now, but I wanna go back to some of your early experiences with bad leaders, in particular, the, the CEO that you had in Vietnam. And, and then I want you to kind of fill us in, like in your perspective, what are some of the skill sets that HR professionals should be looking for as they begin to think about succession planning, particularly then executive development? So tell us what bad looks like and why, and then give us your perspective on what you think we should be looking for. Well, I would, I would say right up front, Mac, and, and you, the book talks a lot about this. You know, the, the real word that I would use is empathy. Mm. You know, I think the best leaders are people who have not only empathy for those who work for them, but for their peers and maybe surprisingly for their superiors. The, the people who can be empathetic with all three are going to be the best leaders. Uh, and I saw uh, many people over my careers on both sides, uh, civilian and military, I saw a, a good number of people who were empathetic with the people who worked for them, uh, but not so much with their, their peers and certainly not with their superiors. Uh, but what I found as I went along, if you understand and you can empathize with what the pressures are on, on, the, on the bosses and also what the pressures are on your contemporaries, and even if they're your competitors for promotion and everything, you still need to understand what motivates them and why they do the things they do. And then you have the, 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 uh, you know, the, the people, the workforce, and if you're not empathetic with them and you don't understand what motivates them and what's good for them and whatever, that's, that's tragic. And uh, the best leaders I, you know, were, were people in my estimation who understood all those things. Does that mean you don't, you're not forced to, to, to do things that you don't want to, or, 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 or direct your subordinates or something to do things they don't want to No, not at all. But it, it does mean that you understand what is motivating them, what they think is good and what they think is bad and how to approach these things. So, uh, you know, and, and to your point, the, uh, the individual, the, you know, stands indelibly in my mind was the battalion commander uh, that I had the first one in, 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 in Vietnam, uh, who was an arrogant ass. Uh, he cared nothing about, you know, he and the executive officer, you know, basically had great disdain for all the troops. They thought they were all stupid. They thought they, you know, they I had him tell me many times you have to watch them all the time and punish them because they won't do anything on their own. They, they have to be directed all the time to do everything. They, they're not smart enough to come up. I mean, you get the point that the guy was really unbelievable. Um, and there were some officers, or my contemporary, I was an ensign, so I had a few contemporaries, but junior officers that, that in the wardroom that were similar. I mean, that they treated people badly, but there were others who treated people very well. Uh, chiefs were the same, uh, some good, some bad. 
but then I had the next level up was the was the CEO who was bad. And uh, the, I, I, the morale was about as bad as you could imagine. Uh, people, uh, we had some people killed and we had some people wounded and all that stuff. And it just was awful. Uh, thank, thank goodness that he transferred out about halfway through my time there. We got a new commanding officer, exactly the opposite, 180 degrees out. He cared very much about everybody. He cared about the troops. He cared about the uh, his contemporaries. In other words, the other battalion commanders, and he, you know, and, and obviously his bosses. Uh, he didn't. He wanted to make sure that nobody was put in harm's way that wasn't ready, uh, wasn't equipped and trained. Uh, he flew out anytime there was a dangerous thing going on. He was there. He he made sure that everybody knew that he was taking the same chances that he was ordering them to take. So you can see right away, to me, that's the difference. You've got people who understand the job, the people up, down, and all around, and then people who don't. And for my money, the, the first group is are the, are the ones you, that's where the leadership is. Okay. So from that, Mike, I took empathy and I've got caring. So if we're looking to build our bench, those would be two of the competencies we'd look for. What else might stand out if we're really saying who's really got what it takes to lead us? What other things you, would you suggest? I think another thing that's very important and people underrate. When you're making decisions, one of the key elements is how much time do you have to make it? You know, there are some very important decisions that are made everywhere, corporate world, uh, uh, personnel everywhere that have to be made right now. I mean, this is not, you're going to study it for three weeks. And this is where, you know, and when you're evaluating people for executive jobs, leadership jobs, supervisory jobs, you know, a key question I always ask was, can I trust this person to act within the time frame available, be it short or long and make the right decision? Uh, because you get some people that are paralyzed, you know, making the, the, the thorough, thoroughest uh, analysis possible, but you don't have time for that. In many cases, you know, military is the extreme. You know, people's lives are on the line. You've got to make a decision right now. Um, you know, it's not so, so, so much the case in business, but, you know, lots of money can be lost. Uh, safety practices, you know, are you going to shut down a job site because it's not safe? That's a big decision, but it has to be made pretty quick. So I'd say clearly when I'm, uh, I was looking for a promotion, you know, putting people in those kinds of jobs, uh, one of them is your ability to think on their feet and to make a decision quickly. Take all the facts they have, analyze them quickly, make it. But also to be smart enough to know that they didn't have to make an immediate decision if they had time to research it. So, uh, you know, you're clearly looking for, you know, I, I, I would say um, some just some some gut smart. Uh, you know, people get get enamored with degrees and certificates and all that stuff. Uh, and that's nice. But what what is the common sense? I guess that's the word I'm looking for. You want a lot of common sense in the leadership. So 
time to make an evaluation, qualifications, and common sense. Okay, it's a great formula. Well, Mike, I've really enjoyed not only just the first half of this book, and I can't wait to get to the second, but it's been great reconnecting and then having you just share some stories. You know, it's uh, I, I didn't know you well enough back then to even ask, but it's like I've opened up a whole new world with this. And what I love most is that you've got the balance of two different essential career paths, three different types of organizations, and all the, the wisdom that comes from that. So, Mike, for those who are listening that says, well, I really need to read this book, um, where do we find a copy of the book? And then if somebody says, boy, I'd really like to, to pick Mike's brain about our succession plan, is there a way that we can reach out to you and have you just come, come alongside us and give us a hand? How's the best way to contact you and get the book? I think the best way, the book, uh, I, have, I have a website. It's westpointadmiral.com. Uh, on the website is uh, an excerpt from the book. So, you know, you don't want to buy a pig in the poke. <laughs> you can read how I write. Maybe you don't like that, or maybe you like it. But anyway, there's, there's an excerpt in the, from the book. There are uh, endorsements from uh, some, I think, pretty good leaders, uh, one of which was the chief of naval operations that I knew, uh, who's, who ran the Navy. Uh, so... Those, those kind of things uh, are in there. And there's also an order form that you can order the book if you want. Uh, and um, uh, it's also on Amazon. Uh, if, if you're interested, it's on Barnes & Noble, uh, their websites and all that. Excellent. The book is entitled West Point Admiral, Leadership Lessons from Four Decades of Military Service. The author is Michael W. Shelton, who's been with us today. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to share these stories and share your perspectives. We are grateful for that. Well, thank you, Mac. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the HR Oxygen podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy making them. I've learned so much from the guests we've had on the show over the past few years and I hope that you will continue to listen to us regularly. If you are a subscriber on any podcast app or channel, would you do us a favor and take a moment and leave us a review? We would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you have the time, check out all the offerings we have on our website, which is thebossbuilders.com. We have every other month a Sherm Credit webinar that we present, as well as a ton of other events, not to mention our Art of the Great Boss and Art of Being a Great Teammate programs, more information on that site today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, by the way, you may want to unbuckle that seatbelt. I think we just arrived at the gate. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.